Well, good morning, Rocky Peak. Wow, I know Joel, uh, Joel mentioned it, but what a, what a night we had Thursday night, amen? Just incredible, incredible time. It just seems like every time it gets better than the last, something's going on. And uh, before we go into our time of teaching, I have just a couple things for you. First of all, is that this is the time of year where right after Thanksgiving, the day after Thanksgiving, we send out an all-church email. It's a ministry update for me, just on some important things as we uh, kind of move towards the uh, Christmas and then the uh, new year. So for example, there's kind of four topics they're gonna be talking about uh, Christmas Eve services, uh, the, Christ- the new Christmas generosity initiative will be introducing uh, the, uh, uh, the start of two new series. So we're gonna take a break from Romans uh, after Christmas. We'll come back to it in the spring. Uh, we're gonna be doing two new series and then uh, kind of an important financial update where we're at going into the last month of the year. Uh, December is always our most important month financially. So just where we're going. So the reason I mention that is if you're not on our, on our email list, uh, you'll definitely want to get on that if you, if you want the information, unless you don't want us to stalk you. Um, but uh, just you can do that by, by just on, the, on your Connect card today inside your program. You can just uh, put your name and information in. We'll, we'll include that. Uh, or if, you're, uh, if, you, you, if you just want to email us, you can email us info at rockypeak.org so you'd like to be included. So I just want to make sure you've got that. And then, of course, if you don't have email or you don't want to be on the internet or whatever, we'll have, um, we've got hard copies next weekend on the patio uh, for you. So we're going to go into our time of teaching right now, um, and I'm going to lead us in prayer, but before I do that, I'd like to ask you to stand with me, all right? So this morning, as I was spending some time with the Lord um, before the service, I just felt like he gave me certain verses. He gave, gave me a passage to pray over us as a church, and um, I want to read that to you. Um, and then just to prepare our hearts to go before the Lord, all right? And we're, okay, so, so here's what it says. It's from Ephesians chapter 5, and the Lord says, Wake up, sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days we're living in are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of God for your life is. And we come today, I just felt like he was saying, this is, this is my role to remind us who he is and who we are and to call us as a church to wake up. It's a time to awaken to the unseen realities that surround us, to who he is, who we are, and the incredible calling that he has in our life, amen? So we're gonna go before the Lord, and we're just gonna ask him to come today and to speak, and then you're gonna sit down and I'm gonna start the story, all right? (laughs) We'll start with story time, all right. So Lord, we just come as your people, and we realize, Lord, that sometimes just in the busyness and the distractions of life, we can forget what's real. We can forget what's important. We can go to sleep at the switch. We can begin living as men and women who are not wise, but as foolish, that we're taking our cues from the world around us instead of from you and who you are and who we are. And so, Lord, today, as we start this service, we just say we want to awaken to your spirit. We ask you to speak to us today. You teach us how to be wise and not foolish and to understand what your will is for our lives. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, our story starts today in the fall of the year. Um, as he wakes up and looks out the window, it's a cool and crisp October day. The sky is blue. Uh, there's not a cloud in the sky. The sun is risen. And there's a slight breeze blowing through the city. And uh, on this morning, he's going to wait a little bit until it's a little later. He's going to wake up his wife. They're going to get dressed. And after they get dressed, they're going to wake up their three young children and get them dressed. Normally, at this point on their day, they would have breakfast together. It's what they do every day. But not today, because today is, today is a very special day. In fact, today is a national holiday. It's one of the most important days of the year. And they don't want to be late. And so after they get dressed, everyone's ready. They walk out the front door. Their dad stays behind, locks it up, and then he, he leads his children through the city. His two older ones are old enough to walk on their own. And so as they come out of their house, they take a right, head down a narrow lane that they live on and towards one of the main, main arteries of the city. His two younger children, uh, his two oldest children, he's holding their hands as they walk through the morning uh, the morning breeze together. His wife is right behind him carrying their young son who's, who's just been born about six months before. She's got him swaddled up. And as they walk down the lane, they, they begin to approach one of the main, main streets of the city. And as they do, they see the crowds. And they're all heading in one direction. They're all heading uphill. And so they, they merge in with the crowds in this day, there's not a shop that's open. No one is working. This is a, a holiday for everyone in the nation. And they join the crowd as they're going to be walking less than a mile up to the high point of the city for this very special day where they remember. Well, today we're continuing this series that we've been in now. It's week 20 of the series. Uh, for those of you who are brand new, it's called The Gospel of God. And if you're, if you're brand new, a special welcome, whether you're here at our weekend services, maybe you're out in the patio, even you're online. Um, this is a, a series that's uh, kind of an in-depth study of one of the most important letters ever written in the history of the world. No exaggeration, the influence it's had. It's in the second part of our Bible, so part we call the New Testament. It's written by one of the key leaders of the early movement of Jesus, once a hater uh, early on, but then he met the resurrected Jesus about two years after Jesus' resurrection, and he became one of Jesus' spokesperson. We call him an apostle, and so his name is the Apostle Paul. And he's writing a letter to a group of people, most of whom he's never met. They live in the capital city of the Roman Empire, Rome itself, it's about a million people, and so we call this letter the letter to the Romans. And in the opening sentence, he introduces the main topic of this letter, what he calls the gospel of God, kind of the epic big picture story of God's rescue mission of us as a race. And so if you've been here in the series, that last week we left off in the middle of chapter three of Romans. Have your Bibles, uh, have your apps uh, open up, but not to Romans three. All right. So we're going to go today to somewhere else. This, today we come to one of the most important paragraphs in the entire letter of Romans, but it's not just the most important paragraph. 
in the letter of Romans, it's one of the most important paragraphs literally in the whole Bible. But to understand it, we're gonna need a little bit of backstory. So instead of opening to Romans 3, we're gonna go to Leviticus chapter 16, all right? So there in your note sheet, you see a section called the Gospel of God, the Atonement Cover, Leviticus 16. Now, uh, if you're new at this, uh, Leviticus is the third book in our Bible. So it's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. I'm sure it's familiar to many of you because it's where you've stopped many times when you've been reading through the Bible in a year. (laughs) But it's a very, it's a powerful, It's a powerful book, and we're gonna be looking at this incredible section in chapter 16. Now, as you turn there, I wanna set it up. So let's go back in time, right? So so God has just rescued, or the word redeemed, kind of bought out of slavery. God has rescued the nation of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. They take a three-month journey. They arrive at Mount Sinai. There God reveals himself in an amazing display of power, and he, he offers them to enter into a very special relationship, almost like a marriage proposal. He says that I will be your God and you will be my people. We call this special relationship a covenant. And so um, they say, I do. And they enter into covenant with God. And so uh, God begins to tell them, here's what this relationship looks like. Here's what you need to do. And one of the things, the very first things he says is, you all live in a tent. Think Bedouin tents. You all live in tents. I want to live with you right in the middle of the nation. So he gives, uh, he gives Moses these detailed instructions for this very special sacred tent full of symbolism that we won't really understand until the Messiah comes. And so uh, this tent was to be made, uh, and it was to be put right in the center of, the, of the, the nation with three tribes to the north, three to the south, three to the east, three to the west. And so, uh, so in this tent this, that we call the tabernacle, right, in this special tent full of symbolism, there are two separate compartments. So outside of the tent is the altar. This is in the open air where sacrifice is made. But inside the tent, it's divided into two separate compartments. So the first compartment is larger. We call it the holy place. It's a holy before the Lord. This is where only priests can go and then go every day and do what they need to do. Then there's a second section further back, smaller section, that's also holy, but it's the most holy place. The way you would say that in Hebrew is the, of all things holy, it's the most holy, so we we call it the holy of holies, right? So uh, into this back section, only the priest can go only once a year, uh, only on the special day in the fall called the Day of Atonement. Now, when you go back into that that back uh, room, there's not a lot there, but one of the things that's there is the Ark of the Covenant. Now, probably you can picture this because not because you're a Bible scholar, but because you've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark. (laughs) So the ark, the ark is a box, right? It's a wooden box, it's covered with gold, it's two and a half feet high, two and a half feet wide, four feet long. Uh, It's gold-plated, the whole thing's gold-plated, and on top of it, on top of the the, the top cover, uh, there are these two angelic beings uh, called cherubs, or in, in plural in Hebrew, cherubim, and these two cherubs are facing one another with their wings outstretched towards one another, and in between them, there is nothing. There's nothing except the top of the gold box, which is called, and this is why we're looking at this passage today, it's called the atonement cover. Now, what would happen is that once a year on the Day of Atonement, 
the high priest would sacrifice certain sacrifices outside, and then he'd bring the blood of the animals, the bull, the goats, the rams, he'd bring it into the back room, the most holy place, and he would sprinkle the blood uh, on top of this ark, we call the atonement cover, and we're told that when he goes in there, the presence of God will appear covering like a cloud over this. So, it's, so what he's doing, he's entering into the presence of God with the blood of the sacrifice to make atonement. He's, now he's actually gonna go in twice. The first time he goes in taking the blood of a bull is for himself and his family. He and his sons are the priests of Israel. Um, and so the second time he's gonna go in, he's gonna take the blood of goats and that's gonna be for the sins of the people. So this takes us back to this story I started the day. The story started the day about this young family getting up early, skipping breakfast, because on the day of atonement, it's a day of fasting. And they're gonna walk, it's this, the scene that I'm describing is hundreds of years later, when Israel's no longer in the wilderness where they started the, the tabernacle, they're now in the city of Jerusalem, it's now the capital, you have the temple mount at the top of the mount, at the top of the hill, and the whole city is gonna be gathering, merging up for this very special uh, ceremony, the Day of Atonement, where sin is made for the people. And what I want you to catch is that what God is saying through this is I want to dwell in your midst, but in order for us to have relationship, there has to be atonement for your sins. Right? All right, so with that as an intro, let's, let's jump in in chapter 16. Now, uh, we're not gonna read every verse just because of time. I wish we could, but we can't. So we're just gonna go through and hit key verses. You'll see how this works. This is the passage we need to understand before we jump into Romans 3 today. Uh, the Apostle Paul is gonna assume that we know this, right? So in verse two, it says, so the Lord, so we see all caps, what's that mean? Yahweh. Yahweh, okay, so Yahweh says to Moses, tell your brother Aaron. So the first high priest was his brother Aaron. And he says, tell your brother Aaron that he's not to come whenever he chooses into the what? Okay, that's the second compartment, what we sometimes traditionally call the holy of holies. The most holy place behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover. Remember, that's the top of the ark. Uh, or else he will what? He will die. Now, this is not just hyperbole because recently, not long before this, Aaron's two sons who were priests came into the presence of God inappropriately and they were struck dead. And so he says, uh, the reason is that I will appear in the cloud over the atonement cover. So you've got the two cherubim, right? And Israel's, God's very clear, you don't make any images of God, right? So you have the two cherubim with the wings out facing each other and what they represent is in between is where the presence of God is, represented by the cloud. And so he says, uh, so in verse three, this is how Aaron is to enter this most holy place. He must first bring a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. So he's going to sacrifice, he's outside the temple at the, at the, the altar that's been sanctified by blood and so on. 
and he's gonna, and then he's gonna bring the blood. This is for his own sin and the sin of his family. So if you go to verse five, uh, uh, he says, from the Israelite community, after he goes in the first time, he's gonna go in the second time, he's gonna take two male goats for a sin offering and a ram for a burn up. So he's gonna go in twice, once for himself and his family, and then once for the nation. Verse 11. So Aaron shall bring the bull for his own sin offering, this is the first time, to make atonement for himself and his household. He's to slaughter the bull, this is outside, and then uh, for his own sin offering, skip to verse 14. Then when he goes inside, he's to take some of the the bull's blood and with his finger, he's to sprinkle it on the atonement cover, right, on top between and, uh, and he'll sprinkle some of it with his finger seven times before the atonement cover. And then he'll go on a second time, he'll slaughter the goat outside for the sin offering for the people. He'll take the blood behind the curtain, go on a second time, and he'll do with it the same he did with the bull's blood. He'll sprinkle it the seven times. He'll sprinkle it on the atonement cover and in front of it. And in this way, he'll make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanness and the rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins have been. And he's to do the same for the tent of meeting, which is among them in the midst of their uncleanness. Now we'll go to verse 29. This is to be a lasting ordinance for you on the 10th day of the seventh month. So this would be, depending on the year, in our September or our October. Uh, this is why Yom Kippur, the day, of, uh, the day of Atonement, is still celebrated today in Jewish communities. So on the 10th day of the seventh month, you must deny yourselves, which Israel understood to mean fasting, and do not do any work. So this was a special uh, Sabbath for the whole nation, whether native-born or a foreigner residing among you, because on this day, atonement will be made for you to cleanse you and then before Yahweh, you will be clean from all your sins. It's a day of Sabbath rest, and you must deny yourselves. It's a lasting ordinance, all right? So what I want you to catch is God tells Moses when they enter into covenant, there's a lot of things he tells them. One of the first things, I want to dwell with you. I want to be right in the middle of your lives. But in order to do that, we have to have atonement for a righteous God to be with an unrighteous people. Now this is a passage that Paul assumes we know as we go into Romans three. So let's let's turn down to Romans three. You have an next section there on your note sheet. It's called the gospel of God, the sacrifice of atonement. So Romans three, so let me set this one up because it's been a week since last time. And we had an encounter that blew our minds and everyone's in an encounter hangover today. <laughs> and so let me set this up. So, um, so here's where we're at in Romans. Like if you're, if you're brand new here at Rocky, here's where we're at in Romans. In the first two chapters, Paul has laid out the start of the gospel of God, the story that, that, that we are a rebel race. And then each of us in our own way, whether Gentiles or Jews, have rebelled against God's leadership in our lives, kind of made ourselves our own God, um, and, and that uh, as a result of this rebellion, this high treason, the lights have gone out on this race. It started this downward spiral 
uh, of sin and that we are now all under the power of sin. We're, we're a fallen race. Uh, we're, we're, uh, there's no one good. Uh, no one's righteous uh, when you compare like to what the standard was. Jesus, we've lost the glory of God. And, and so as a result, we're all under the judgment or wrath of God. So in other words, if you and I were to stand today by ourselves at the final judgment, we would all be guilty. That would be the verdict. And so remember last week, if you were here, Paul wrapped up his, after like the prosecuting attorney laying out the evidence in two chapters, he then gave his closing argument in chapter three, quoting six or seven passages from the Old Testament scriptures to put the kind of the exclamation mark on this, that there is no one good, there's no one who seeks for God, there's no one righteous, there's no fear of God before their eyes. And so as a race, we're all under the judgment of God. So we have to understand the story of our race to understand the story of the Messiah and why it's such good news. And so so now that we've come to the low point of Romans, we're ready to go to the high point of Romans. And so today, he's gonna talk about what God did, how God responded to a rebel race. And it's gonna kind of blow our minds, right? That this God, instead of destroying us, is gonna come after us on this amazing rescue mission through the Messiah, and he's explain how that works. And so we come to one of the most important chapters in all, or uh, paragraphs in all the Bible. And so let's walk through, we're gonna start at verse 21. So he says, but now, so by now he means uh, at this point in human history, with the coming of the Messiah, everything's changed. And he says, but now, apart from the law, in other words, apart from our performance, the righteousness of God has been made known. Now this is interesting, this phrase, the righteousness of God, scholars will disagree as to how Paul, what Paul means, but I think it's pretty safe to say there's probably three things that are involved with this righteousness of God. The one thing it says is it's talking about God's personal righteousness, that he's made promises to the human race from the beginning and promises to Israel that one day he would come and rescue our race. And so in the gospel, we're seeing how God is keeping his promise, how he is righteous. We're also seeing, secondly, that God has made a way for unrighteous, right, in chapters one and two, this ungodly people, he's made a way for us to become to be pronounced righteous before the court of heaven in a way that's separate from our resume or, or, or uh, performance. And the third thing it shows is that how God did this in a way that didn't compromise his own righteousness as a judge. Like if you go before a judge, the one thing you want is you want a righteous judge, right? You, you don't want a judge that's going to let people who do evil get away with it. So if God lets us off as a race after he's described how evil we are in chapter one and two, then what kind of God would do that? That what kind of, the God that loves, he supposedly loves what's good and right and true, but he just lets off people who are evil and destructive. Like that's not, that would be a compromise. And so, so this righteousness of God is gonna be revealed in this, the coming of the Messiah. So he says, but now, uh, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. And he says, it's, it's revealed now. This is kind of being, uh, it's being, uh, kind of the gift is being unwrapped, if you will. But he says, but it's not completely new. Because uh, the law and the prophets testify about this. 
And if you remember back in chapter one, when Paul introduces the gospel of God, he says it's the gospel of God that was prophesied in the Hebrew scriptures by the prophets. So it's, it's, in one sense, it's new, it's unwrapped, but in another sense, once it's unwrapped, you go, oh, it's kind of been there all along. And so he says, this righteousness is given through faith in Christ, Jesus Christ, to all who believe. In other words, this path to being proclaimed in the right before a court of heaven, it, it has to do with our relationship with and trust in the Messiah. And so he says, uh, notice he says it's to all who believe. What he means here is all, both Jew and Gentile. Because the hardest people that had the, the hardest time understanding this in Paul's day was the Jews who thought they would be pronounced righteous because of their having the law. And so he says that there's only one way to be pronounced righteous. It's to all who believe. And that's what he says next. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. And he said the reason there's no difference is because all have sinned. And this is what we saw in chapter one, the Gentiles have sinned. Chapter two, the, the, the Jews have sinned. Where we've all rebelled against our creator. And then he says on top of that, we've fallen short of the glory of God. And we've talked about this the last couple of weeks that when we rebelled against our creator, something broke in the human heart and we became a fallen people with this magnetic pull to the dark side. So we're no longer do we reflect the glory of God that we were designed to create, that we, we no longer, we lost that glory. And of course, this is why Jesus has come back to restore this glory. And so he goes on and he says, and all are justified. So this is an important word for Paul. This is a really interesting word. In the Greek, we're not gonna go into it, but in the Greek, the word for righteousness and the word for justice are the same word. To the extent that it's hard to know sometimes, is it, would, would justice be a better translation or would righteousness be? But what Paul is saying is we come before the court of heaven, we come before God, that there is a way to be pronounced in the right. Okay, so we're gonna come before God. We're either gonna be condemned forever or we're gonna be justified, pronounced in the right, pronounced righteous. And he says there's a way that God has made for us to be pronounced in the right that has nothing to do with our resume or performance. Because if it did, we would all be pronounced condemned. Right? So he says... Um, so all are justified freely, this is a gift. Uh, it's by his grace, right, not our performance, and it's through the what? The redemption, so this is an important word. Redemption in the ancient world was the, the word that you would use to buy back prisoners of war. So like right now, we've got this conflict between Israel and Hamas, they've got hostages. If Hamas was to say, we'll sell these back to you at a certain price, that would be redemption. They'd be redeeming. This was the word that was used in the ancient world to describe freeing someone from slavery. Like if you wanted to free someone from slavery, you would redeem them, and they could be set free. And of course, if you're a Jew, when you hear the word redemption, the biggest redemption of all is when God set you free from slavery in Egypt. So it's a big word, right? So he says that, uh, that 
all have been justified freely by his grace and through this redemption, this rescue, that's why I call this message the rescue, uh, that came by Christ Jesus. And so now he's, now he's gonna explain how, how God accomplished this. How does the Messiah buy us back? How is that possible? How is it possible for us to be justified, pronounced in the right when we're actually wrong, in the wrong? And he says, well, here's what happened. God presented, so in this passage, it's like God is a priest. It's like, it's an offering. Well, you're gonna see, it's like, it's like imagery of sacrifice, right? So he said, God presented Christ. Remember, Christ in the Greek, Christos, is for Messiah, the Greek version of Messiah. So God presented the Messiah as a sacrifice of what? Okay, so when we talk about atonement, this word could be translated either atonement or it could be translated propitiation. We have a better sense of atonement in our culture. When you atone for something, you kind of make up for it or you get someone off the hook, right? Propitiate has to do with satisfying the wrath, like appeasing the anger or the wrath. And remember what we've learned all through Romans is that a race that we're under the wrath of God. And so God has created a way for us to be, for that wrath to be propitiated or satisfied. And it has to do with this offering of the Messiah as a sacrifice. And so he says, we're justified freely by his grace for the redemption that came to Christ. So God presented Messiah as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood, the giving of his life, to be received by what? Faith, by our trust in that. And he says, now God did this. Why did God send the Messiah to be this uh, sacrifice? He did it to demonstrate his righteousness. Remember we talked about the righteousness of God. It can refer to God keeping his promises of salvation. It can refer to the new path to righteousness through us, how the unrighteous can be made righteous. But remember, it also the question is, how can God, if he's a righteous judge, pronounce us as right with him if we're evil and still be a good judge? And so he says, he did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, his patience, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. So at this point in human history, we've seen Romans 1 and 2, the whole history of this rebellion as a race, if God is a righteous judge, it's just letting that go. And it's like, no. That this plan was a plan from the beginning. That Messiah would come and give his his life as an atonement. So here's the thing. Every sin that's ever been committed will be paid for. It'll either be paid for by those who have committed it, you and I, or it's paid for by the Messiah on behalf of those who've committed. But every evil that's ever been committed in the human will be held accountable. We will either pay for it apart from God forever in hell or it can be paid for by the Messiah. And we receive our forgiveness through him because he paid for it on our behalf. Are you, are you with me? Okay. okay, so he says he did this to demonstrate, verse 26, his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies. Again, to be righteous 
and to be the one who pronounces righteous. That, that through Christ, he's able to, to be a good judge and hold the world accountable for our sin, like a good judge should. But he's also able, because of the Messiah, to pronounce those who are ungodly now proclaimed righteous. So that's the passage. Now, like I said, it's one of the most important passages in the, not only it's Romans, but the whole Bible. And what I want to do today is I just want to highlight one big picture principle that comes out of this um, about our redemption, about our rescue. And then I want to come back and I want to ask three really pointed, I think helpful questions about how this applies to our lives. So there in your note sheet, the section, the gospel of God, um, the hilosterion. You say, what in the world is a hilosterion? I'm so glad that both of you asked. Um, okay, so let me, let's fill in some blanks, and then we'll talk about this, all right? This is very powerful. So here, here's the blank. Jesus is our hilosterion. So that's why I put it in the title so you could spell it. <laughs> so Jesus is our, so what do you mean? Okay, so let's talk about this word hilosterion. Uh, this is a Greek word, and it's a very important word in this passage, but understand why it's so important we need Leviticus 16. This is why we started there. So go back with me, you don't have to turn there, um, but just go back with me in time till we talked about this a few minutes ago. And remember what we learned, that on the Day of Atonement, God said, I want to live in the midst of the people, but in order for that, for, an unrighteous, for a righteous God to live with the unrighteous people, there has to be atonement made. And so on this one day a year, in the fall, we're gonna have this Day of Atonement, and the high priest is gonna come in, he's gonna offer, he's gonna offer a sacrifice for his sins to make atonement, and he's gonna come a second time for the, uh, for the sins of people. Now, do you remember where he was supposed to sprinkle the blood? On the top, do you remember what it's called? The atonement cover, right? So we look there on there in your note sheet, Leviticus 16. He shall slaughter the goat for the sin offering for the people, take the blood behind the curtain, do with it as he did with the bull's blood. He shall sprinkle it on in a towel, except put it there, the atonement cover. Now here's where it get, gets interesting. Some of you will remember this. Um, but back at the start of this series, I mentioned this two or three times, that the most popular translation of the early church, like our, the one we use here is the New International Version, right? It's a translation from the Greek or the Hebrew or the Aramaic, depending on what part of the Bible. And the early church, that the Bible of the early church, the primary Bible of the Apostle Paul, that he would quote and so on, was a Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures. You remember that? And so we call that the Septuagint. It's abbreviated with capital letters for Roman numeral 70, LXX. So, so usually like, and when Paul's going through Romans, he's quoting from passages, it's usually from the Septuagint. This was a Bible, most people didn't read Hebrew, or they weren't familiar with Hebrew, especially as the gospel went out into the Gentile world. And so this was the Bible of the early church. So here's where it gets interesting. If you were to read Leviticus 16 in the Septuagint, in the Greek, when it got to the word atonement cover, guess how it would translate that Hebrew word? Hilosterion. 
that the high priest would go in and he would make sacrifice on the hilasterion. Now, once you get that, Romans 3 becomes very powerful because Paul will use that word to talk about how our salvation was pulled off. So if you go now to Romans chapter 3, I put there in your note sheet, God presented Christ the Messiah as a sacrifice of atonement, right? But in the Greek, it's hilasterion. He's quoting from Leviticus 16 that Jesus is our day of atonement. This is how an unrighteous people is able to dwell with a righteous God. And so what happens when a man or woman comes to Jesus, what happens is that we're trusting in Jesus as our hilasterion. We're not trusting in our performance. We're not trusting in our resume. If we were trusting in either one, we would be condemned forever. So Jesus is our, and here's what I want you to catch. This is something we never outgrow. That every time you and I come to the Father in prayer, we come in our hilasterion. We never come. We never come based on who we are or what we've accomplished. We live in the place of the hilasterion. This is why Paul says that every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is in Christ. You're in Christ. I'm in Christ. We have nothing outside of Christ. Whenever we come to God, we're always coming on the basis of the hilasterion. And so this is how an unrighteous race can be made right with God through our hilasterion. His, his innocence swapped for our guilt. The, the innocent punished for the guilty so that we can be not only forgiven, but we can then be adopted into his family and we can receive the spirit of his son into our lives and we can begin this process of transformation to restore the glory that we were created to have as a race that will be completed when Jesus comes back, amen? So here's what I want you to catch is that, that essentially what happened is that prior to this, we looked at it like this. We're all gonna go before the final judgment at, at the end of time and there we're, we're going to be either condemned or pronounced in the right, right? That's how we looked at it. Well, Paul says, no, now because of Messiah's come, that, that point of judgment comes back here to where we're living right now. And the moment that a person trusts in Jesus to be their hilasterion, they are pronounced in the right. The judgment that was coming down there has now been pushed up here. And this is why Jesus says that whoever believes in him has already passed from death into life right now. And now, when we, get, uh, uh, when we get to chapter five, we'll see the motivation for this. Like, why did God do this? 
Why didn't he just condemn a rebel race? Start over again. And when we get to chapter five, we're going to see why. The motive behind this. And it's amazing. And we're going to jump ahead because we're not going to be in chapter five until spring. <laughs> all right? So we're going to jump ahead there on your note sheet. And look at what Paul says in chapter five. He says, because we've been justified, pronounced, pronounced, pronounced in the right, he said, God demonstrates his own what? And this is what we're going to learn. That this whole incredible thing where God, the son, became one of us, a human being, to die and be tortured on a Roman cross rather than destroy us. This is the greatest love story. This is, this is love. It's why, it's what it's all about. He said, God demonstrates his own love for us and while we were still what? Now, when you read that, read it in light of Romans 1 and 2. We've rejected the creator. We've suppressed the truth. We've created God to our own image. We've given into sexual immorality. We've gotten the downward spiral, the whole death thing of the human race. It's like when Paul says sinners, that's what he means, right? And he says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, while we were while we were in, while we were rebels, while we were Hamas, he died for us. And he says, since we've now been, what's the next word? Justified, pronounced in the right, how? By his blood, the hilasterion. How much more Shall we be saved from God's what? So how did Romans start? Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against the ungodliness of men who've suppressed the truth. How is that at the end of time, that wrath of God against our race will be revealed? But Paul says for the believer, there's no more wrath. We don't have to live in fear of that. We've been justified in time. And he says, since we've been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath at the end of time through him? For if while we were God's what? Enemies. What does it mean to be a sinner? It means to be enemy, rebels. For if while we were his enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, like Paul will say in Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? If he rescued us by the death of his son, how will he not give us everything else? I mean, he gave us the best. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved on that final day through his life? Right? And so what I want you to catch as we come to this, this paragraph, we're coming to the heart of the story, the death and the resurrection of Messiah. And out of that death and resurrection flow really most of the rest of Romans and the whole story of the gospel. The rest of the gospel is kind of unpacking that event. And so what I want to do today is I want to ask three questions that help us unpack that event. All right, so there in your note sheet, the gospel of God, three key questions. 
And so the first question is the most obvious, right? And this is especially for us here who have not yet come to Jesus, but for those of us who have, this is very important we reorient here because we're gonna need this foundation for number two. So here's the question. What are you trusting for your salvation? So what Paul says is we're part of a rebel race. There's no one good, not one. We're all going to be condemned. If we stood at the final judgment by ourselves, we'd all be condemned, right, to an eternity of hell. So So he says there's only two ways to approach this. You can either stand there based on your own resume and your own performance by which we've already demonstrated you're going down. Or you can trust in the Messiah who was your Hilasterian. What does that look like? It, it looks like returning to our creator from whom we've all rebelled. It looks like bowing the knee. It looks like turning from our rebellion. And it looks like receiving this free gift that he gives us, which is total amnesty for all crimes against the kingdom based not on anything we've done, based on his love and based on Jesus is our hilasterion. And that when that happens, that we receive also the gift of the spirit of his son to transform us. We can start restoring the glory that we're created to have, to be like our creator again, that will be then completed in the next life. And so the first question is, who are you trusting when you stand before God. And so for some of us here, we've never made that decision. We've never trusted in Jesus to be our hilasterian. We're still on our own. We're still uh, headed for condemnation. And if that's you today and you say, I'm ready. I'm ready to bow my knee to the creator. I'm ready to come home. And I want to receive that gift of amnesty and this new life. Then in a few minutes, I'm going to give you the opportunity to do that. But the second question is for those of us who are believers, and the question goes like this, what are you trusting for your relationship? And what I mean is, is like, what are you trusting in for your relationship with God and your growth and your, your transformation? I think that often when we first come to Christ that we understand this better that we come to Jesus, we understand we don't have much to offer. We don't have anything to offer. And so when we come to Jesus and we bow our knee and we receive amnesty, we realize this love that we're receiving, this grace that's made possible by Jesus' death, that this is completely a gift. It has nothing to do with us. And so we realize that God's love for us has nothing to do with our performance. Like, we, well, this is how we start our journey, right? But then, then something happens. We start growing and we start changing, and the Holy Spirit begins renewing our life. And somewhere along the line, we often lose sight of this. And we start to think that God's love for us rises and falls on our performance. And so, what does that look like? When we're reading our Bible, when we're not watching porn when we're uh, giving, when we're serving, when we're spending time in prayer, we're in a life group, we go to church regularly, we go to encounter, (laughs) 
um, that, that, that God's love for us trends up. His love's increasing. Are you with me? Like, we're, we're doing the right thing, so now God loves me more. And of course, in the corollary is, hey, if I keep getting angry at my kids all the time and yelling at them and I'm not doing what I should and I haven't been in the word and I haven't been in prayer and I'm not serving and that we feel like his love is diminishing. And what I want you to catch is that God's love for you as a son or daughter of the king never rises and falls. He doesn't love you because you do the right things. He loves you because he does. And his ability to love you is based on the hilosterion. And so this is important for us to understand. And, you're, and you're, some of you might be saying, hey, wait a second. Are you saying it doesn't matter how we live? Just hang with me, all right? It's like, I can just see the Instagram going. <laughs> just hang with me. We're going to get there. Um, what we're seeing in the gospel is that we have been pronounced in the right. We're in relationship. Once that happens, we're adopted into his family, and we become his kids. And he never stops loving his kids. And his love is not based on our performance. Now, you say, well, are you saying he doesn't care how we live? No. Of course he cares. He's a good father. And we're screwing up our lives. He doesn't like it. We're hurting other people. He doesn't like it. I think one of the, the most destructive, I don't know if that's the right way of saying it, but one, the very damaging, let's put it this way, one of the very damaging churches, uh, teachings that sometimes goes around in Bible-believing churches goes like this that when God sees you, he doesn't see you, he sees Christ. And so he doesn't see your sin, he always sees you as perfect. That is not true. <laughs> it's a real relationship. When you're sinning and hurting yourself and hurting others, he sees that, and he's not happy with that. You say, well, how do you know? Well, because I've read the Bible. I put on your note sheet, read Revelation 2 and 3 where Jesus speaks to the seven churches of, of uh, Asia Minor and to some he praises them. You guys are doing great. And to others, he rips into them. You see yourself as, you see yourself as rich. You see yourself as you can see so clearly. He said the reality is you're blind, you're pitiful, you're naked. Repent. Think of it this way. The apostle Paul, is an, he's an apostle of Jesus. He speaks for Jesus, right? And he can say, I'm so proud of you. I'm so pleased with you. But he can also say, what are you thinking? He can also say, don't you know this? Get, what are you guys, what's, what are you smoking? I mean, it's just like, you guys are like crazy. Like this is, he can really, he can really lower the boom. Are you with me? And he's speaking for Jesus. So here's the difference. What Paul is saying is once you are justified, you'll never be condemned at the end of time. The wrath of God has been taken care of. 
This is what, there in your note sheet, such an important verse later in Romans 8, which we'll get to in about three years. <laughs> he says, therefore, there is no what? Condemnation for those. And often we read that as there's no disapproval. That's not what he's saying. He's talking the, the Greek word, katakrima, or katakrima it's, it's about condemnation. It's a legal term, like you're before the court of heaven, and you're either pronounced in the right or you're condemned. And what he's saying is when we come to Jesus and give him our lives, that there is no condemnation. We don't have to figure the wrath of God. He's not saying that God is always equally pleased with us. And as a good father, of course he's not gonna be pleased because sin is destructive. Sin destroys us, it destroys others. Some of you are parents. You want what's best for your kids. Are you happy when they're messing up their lives by doing horrible things? Of course not. And neither is our father. So he's, but here's the thing, he's always for us. He's never against us. So will he discipline us? Yes, because he loves us. This is so important for us to understand, especially for those of us who are wrestling with sort of uh, certain sins in our lives that we can't seem to get on top of. Maybe you're a young mom and you just keep on asking Jesus to give you more patience. Like, someone didn't see that one coming. Uh. And you have gone before the Lord, time, God, forgive me for yelling and forgive me for screaming. I know I'm damaging them. Someday they're going to make a therapist so rich. And, <laughs> and like, God, help me. And yet you find you keep losing your temper. Maybe you're a man or woman and you're kind of addicted to porn and you're trying to get away and you go for a while but then you keep going back and you just feel so horrible. You don't want that. You don't want that sin in your life but you keep giving in. Maybe it's an anger issue. Maybe it's a greed issue but there's some kind of sin in our life that you're wrestling with and you know what happens? We come to a certain point where we're afraid to even go to the Lord and ask him to forgive us because we're afraid that his patience has run out. And we're afraid he doesn't love us anymore. Can I tell you something? He will never love you more. He will never love you less based on your performance. He loved you when you were his enemy. But he hates sin because it's destructive. And you know, in our lives, sometimes where there's a sin we just can't seem to overcome, Sometimes we have to come to a place where we, we really want Jesus more than the sin. And that just takes some time. Sometimes that we have this idea that the Christian life is kind of a self-effort, self-improvement project. And we approach our growth as if, hey, I'm just on my own. And we have to learn over time that that's not how the Christian life works, is that God's power is released when we depend on him, not on ourselves. And that just takes us time to learn. But what I want you to catch is during this time where we're two steps forward, one step back, I want you to know the Lord, never, his love for you never changes. 
that he's always for you. He's never against you. And so what are you trusting? This is a helpful distinction that we sometimes make when we talk about between guilt and shame. So guilt is what we feel when we have violated, we've done something that we believe is wrong. And guilt is a good thing. It helps us understand why what we did was wrong and it kind of helps us motivate us to shame. Shame is very different. Shame is about feeling unworthy. Shame is about feeling unloved. Shame is about feeling I'm a failure. There's something wrong. I'm disgusting. That's shame. And shame is never from the Lord. Shame is always from the enemy. Because here's the reality. If you've been justified in Christ, you've been adopted in his family, the truth about you is this. You have been chosen before time. You have been called to be a follower of Jesus in time. And he has gifted you for this time. And his love is on you and it will never change. And he treasures you. And he treasures you as much when, the, when you trip and fall as when you don't. And so this is what the Hilasterian's about. That because of Jesus, we're able to enter in this new relationship of God and we never leave it. And our relationship with God is always based on the Hilasterian. It's never based on our performance. Amen? Amen. One final question. We don't have a lot of time for this, but I want to ask because it's so important. Are you learning to live a cruciform life? Cruciform meaning of the cross. Here's the thing that often as believers, I think we look on the cross of Christ, we look at it as something that happened at a point of time that Jesus did so we could be saved. And of course, that's true. But what we miss was the cross of Christ is also the picture of the life that we're called to. That it's at the cross of Christ that the love of God is most revealed. And, and so because of this, in the cross, Jesus is modeling the path to glory for our life of what it looks like to be transformed, to be like Jesus. And you see this all through the New Testament over and over again, but just one example Ephesians chapter five, look what Paul says. He says, follow God's example. This God who's forgiven us in Christ is the context. Therefore, as dearly loved what? So we're we're children of God, so follow our Father's example. And he says, and walk in the way of love. Catch this, just as Christ loved us and gave himself for us, as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And this is what we see constantly in the New Testament. Is what does it look like to be a follower of Jesus? What does it look like to be transformed? It looks like this. It looks like living a life of love that requires us to die to ourselves and be transformed to be like him so that we learn to love not just our friends, but our enemies as he loved us. And that's where we're going. And so all this transformation talk, 
it always goes back to the cross. The cross is what we just look back to. It's like, hey, what he did for us. The cross is what we put in front of us and say, this is where we're going. This is what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. This is why he died, so we could be transformed to become the kind of person he is. What kind of person is that? A person who lives a life of love to the extent of giving his life for his enemies. That's what it looks like to regain the glory of God in our lives. Amen? Let's pray together. So, Father, we come today to celebrate the hilasteria, the sacrifice of Christ for us that makes it possible for us to be proclaimed righteous and then thereby be adopted into your family and thereby receive the gift of the Spirit and thereby be transformed and thereby regain the glory and thereby live with you forever in the kingdom that's coming. And so as we come today to celebrate the hilasteria, or we come to just to remember and to give thanks for this incredible act of general, generous love, completely undeserved, that makes a way for us to be forgiven. We come to celebrate that, Lord. And while our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, I want to talk with those of you today that, that maybe that first question I asked about what are you trusting in for your salvation, that for whatever reason... Maybe this is your first time here. Maybe it's the first time you've heard it. Maybe you've heard it before, but for today, it's the first time it made sense and came alive. But you realize that you are fallen. You realize that if you were to come before your creator, you would be condemned forever. And yet God has made a way for you, and you say, I'm ready. I'm ready to come home. I'm ready to bow my knee to return to the creator. I'm ready to turn from my life of rebellion and sin. And I want to receive that gift of new life that comes through the death of Jesus. I want to receive the gift of his Holy Spirit and be transformed and live this new life. And if that's you today, I would invite you that during this time we take communion, that you would go to the communion table and you would receive the bread that represents his broken body. You take the juice, represent his blood shed. This is all a picture of him as our hilasterian. And you would simply ask Jesus to come into your life and forgive you and to fill you with his spirit and to teach you how to follow him. And today would be the day of your justification. While our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, what I encourage us, if you're here, you're not yet a follower of Jesus, that you would not yet participate because this is really a, a, a symbol, like a wedding ring is a symbol of relationship. You don't put it on unless you're married. Same with communion, that we don't take communion unless we have entered into relationship with God through Christ and his death for us. And of course, if you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus, just know how much he loves you, that he set his love on you, that, that he'll never love you more, he'll never love you less. His love doesn't change. He may be pleased, he may be not pleased. You can grieve his spirit, you can make him angry, but it never changes that perfect love he has for you, pulling for you, with you, in you, by the power of his spirit, you would leave the past behind and move into this new freedom you were designed to live in. And that's all we celebrate today in the communion. So as we, as we go into this time of communion, Lord, will you be with us? Will you speak to us according to our need? We praise in Jesus' name, amen.